Welcome to the podcast of Follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au. I think most of us are suckers for a good love story. We love the feeling of a feel-good ending. But the tragedy is that most movies we see these days at the cinemas or on DVD are typical corny love stories, aren't they? Those rom-coms are the same old story with a predictable plot over and over again. We just cut and paste the actors each time. But occasionally you will see a story that has a little bit more substance than that. A story where there is real tragedy and triumph and the nitty-gritty stuff that the key characters have to work through within this love story. Uh, recently, I took Adele and Taylor to the movies to see a love story such as this. It was a story called I Can Only Imagine. It was a wonderful Christian movie that I would highly recommend, and I would put that movie in the category of a nitty-gritty love story. It's based on a true story of the life of a guy called Bart Millard, the guy that wrote um, I Can Only Imagine, and it journeys with him through the ups and downs of his life, through the trials and tragedies, the difficulties and the pleasures of life, and it particularly addresses his relationship with an abusive father. And uh, if you get a chance to go and see the movie, I think it's finished at the cinemas now, but when it comes out on DVD, it's certainly worthwhile, and it's one of those movies that will really tug on your heartstrings. Uh, In fact, both of my daughters on either side of me um, were, at the end of the movie, uh, in tears, and uh, in a very inconvenient thing, I got some salt in my eye from the popcorn at around about the same time, (laughs) and I felt tears going down my eyes as well. Um, But we all know that real men cry, right? So I might as well just own it. Uh, It's one of those uh, movies that really tugs on the heartstrings, that's for sure. But I think these are the kind of movies um, that we love. They're the most powerful kind of love stories, not only because they're true, but also because they're real. Very rarely in life are things perfect. And we often mess things up. And I think we connect with messy love stories because they remind us of our own lives in different ways. And one of the things that I've learned about God, one of the things I love most about God is that he often does his best work in our mess. God often does his best work in our mess. Look no further than the cross, and you'll see that to be true. Today is week three of a series of one of the great love stories in history. And if you're one of those soppy, romantic people uh, like Rowan or Dave Press, you're going to love this this story of Ruth. Um, But even if you're not, Um, I think if you open your heart this morning, there's no doubt that God will speak into your life regardless. But I need to warn you this morning, it's not one of those simplistic, clean-cut, predictable love stories. It's a story with a feel-good ending, no doubt about that. But in between, there's a whole lot of awkward stuff, which you probably picked up as Rowan read chapter 3. But despite all the mess, God is definitely at work in the story of Ruth. And so the title of our series is A Little Book with a lot of love, a little book with a lot of love. And so if you've missed the first couple of weeks, let me recap briefly what's happened in the story so far. In chapter one, we read a character called Naomi. Naomi was a woman who lived in Bethlehem, and she lived in a time where there was a famine in the land. And so her and her husband and two sons packed up their stuff and moved from Bethlehem to the land of Moab to find food. And while they were in Moab, um, her two sons married two Moabite women, named Orpah and Ruth. And soon after that, tragedy struck and Naomi lost her husband and also her two sons died as well. 
And so this is a tragic situation for Naomi, uh, also for Orpah, and also for Ruth, who all lost their husbands and other close family members. And so Naomi, in the light of these tragedies in her life, decided to pack up her stuff in Moab and head back to her hometown of Bethlehem. And so her and her daughter-in-laws, they head off back to Bethlehem. But shortly into the journey, she realized that this is a big step for the daughter-in-laws. And then she discouraged them from continuing with her to Bethlehem, and she encouraged them to go back to their families in Moab, where they could remarry and start a family. And so Orpah was eventually convinced to do that. So she kissed Naomi, and she headed back um, to Moab and to her family. But Ruth, in an incredible um, demonstration of kindness and love and self-sacrifice, continued on her way to Bethlehem with Naomi. And on the way to Bethlehem, she had what we would call a conversion experience, where she came to put her trust in Naomi's God, the God of Israel. And so last week, we saw the story pick up when they arrived back in Bethlehem. And we noticed that when they got back to Bethlehem, it's Ruth that goes to work in the fields to provide for her and Naomi. And in what some people would call a coincidence, we call a God incidence, Ruth, as it happened, found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz. Now, Boaz was not only a godly, upstanding man in the community, but he was also a close relative of Naomi and had the potential to support them through this period of their life. And so in the story so far, we can see clearly that God has been at work in the darkest period of Ruth's life. He is working all things together for good, and he's doing it in an extraordinary way. And last week, we were reminded that the same God does very similar things in our life today. He's working all things together for good in our lives for those who love God and are called according to his uh, his purpose. And he's working in our lives even in the times when we can't see it. And so up until this point in the story, in chapter 2, we saw that Boaz has shown great kindness to Ruth, uh, in the fields particularly. And he's provided for her in very generous ways. And the narrative is written in a way that at the end of the last chapter, we sense that there's a budding romance on the horizon. There's a romance coming up between Boaz and Ruth. But as we pick it up in chapter 3, it's about six weeks now since Boaz and Ruth first met. And nothing has yet happened on the romance front. Boaz is a little bit slow in picking up the hints. Uh, Are you slow at picking up the hints? Or are you one of those ones who imagines that there's hints and there really isn't? It's always a fine line to walk in all that, isn't there? But Boaz hasn't picked up the hints. And so at this point, Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, is hatching a plan to get things moving. And so chapter 3 starts with a conversation between Naomi and Ruth, mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. And it goes like this. My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now, the modern translation of that is simply this. Listen up, girl. I need to find you a hubby. And I need to do it ASAP. And so up until this point, in their return to Bethlehem, we've seen that Ruth has been the one providing for Naomi, but they had returned in the time of the barley harvest. And poor people such as Ruth, at times such as this, were permitted to go into the fields and help themselves to the leftovers that were left behind the men and women who were harvesting the grain. And so Ruth in the story so far has found favour in the eyes of Boaz and he's told the men to deliberately leave stalks of grain behind for her that she could gather for her and Naomi and provide for them. And so she had been the one working hard to provide. But now in the story, the barley harvest was over and it was now time to thresh the grain. Now what does that mean? Well, once all the grain had been reaped, it was brought to the threshing floor. 
And in the mid to late afternoon, when the wind kind of picks up, the men would gather to thresh the grain. And the way they did it is they get a prong fork and they stick it into the grain and they'd throw it up in the air like that. And the good grain would fall straight back down to the ground and the bad grain would blow away and that would be the chaff. And they'd just leave that until later on where they collect it to burn. And so everything that fell to the ground was really their profit margin. It's what they'd made from this particular harvest. And so the final profit margin of their harvest would be discovered that day. And so everyone would come together. They would thresh the grain. They would add up the profit. They would allocate the shares to the appropriate people. They'd have a big party to celebrate. And then they'd all leave and return to their homes until it was time to come back and sow again. And so Naomi and Ruth, their short-term season of reaping was now over and a more longer-term solution to provide for them was needed to be found. And so the answer, um, Naomi's confident she has the answer, and the answer is a husband to provide for Ruth. And so she hopes that Boaz is the man for the job. But it's kind of urgent because this is the last opportunity that Ruth would have to see Boaz for several months. And Naomi is panicking that a relationship hasn't yet happened and that they won't be provided for, and she goes into matchmaking mode. Now, I wonder if you've ever been a matchmaker for anyone in your life. I like to think of myself as a bit of a matchmaker. If you want to get married, come and see me, and I'll sort it out. If you're already married, please don't come and see me. (laughs) But I like to think I'm a bit of a matchmaker. A few years ago, I worked at a church in Cheltenham, and I left there, and I took a role at Beaconsfield Baptist Church. And after I left, some of the people missed me so much, of course, what's not to miss, that they wanted to come and visit. And so they started coming along to our Sunday night services at Beaconsfield Baptist. And they said it was to see me. Um, But I have a suspicion that there were some other motivations and perhaps their little relationship pool in their current church had been exhausted and they wanted to jump in and swim in a different relationship pool with new possibilities. And so they came along to our night services and I see one of the couples here this morning and they're smiling at me. But they came along to Beaconsfield, and as it happened, by chance, they found themselves in a field. Sorry, a different church. And connections started to happen. And these God incidences meant that a couple of those people are now married to girls that they met at Beaconsfield. And I'm about to do a third wedding through that connection. I'm not going to mention names this morning because I don't want to embarrass people. But in a particularly separate, uh, a completely separate um, thing to pray for today, please be praying for Braden and Claire who've recently moved to China. They're a wonderful couple. And also Rachel Abel, who are getting married soon as well. Um, and they, they don't give me any credit for their relationship at all. But I take credit anyway, because <laughs> they met each other through the, Bacon, uh, the Beaconsfield-Cheltenham connection, as did Nathan and Aaron, sitting there in about the fifth row. And so I see myself as a bit of an accidental matchmaker. Now, maybe you're not a matchmaker this morning, but maybe you have a mother who is. Have you ever had a mum that's tried to set you up with somebody? Have you ever had a mum who invites other families over because they know they've got a kid who's in the zone as a potential life partner? <laughs> Maybe she's given you a nudge at church and said, who's that young man? He's a lovely boy. He's a bit cute, don't you think? Usually followed by the daughter saying, mum, in a really awkward kind of a way. If you've had something like that happen, you can probably relate to this story and what Naomi is trying to achieve for Ruth. But I'm not convinced that the way she goes about it and the advice she gives is the wisest counsel you can offer. In fact, as your pastor this morning, I would strongly recommend that you don't do it this way with your kids. Let's pick up the story in verse 2. Now, Boaz, with with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. 
Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. And so wash yourself, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes, then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. And so here's Naomi's advice to her daughter. Get all doled up. Get your best perfume on so you're smelling nice. Head to the threshing floor. Keep an eye on Boaz. Don't let him know you're there. Wait until he's had a bit to drink. Note where he lies. Jump into bed with him. And when he wakes up in the middle of the night, simply say, I'm Ruth. What do you want me to do? (laughs) This is pretty risky advice. In the dark, at midnight, a guy and a girl keen on each other. There's alcohol in the mix. Not yet married. What could possibly go wrong? Not the advice we'd give to our young single daughters. Or at least I hope not. If it is, please come and see me for prayer after the service. But we read a story like this and it seems kind of strange, doesn't it? But it kind of occurred to me this week that it's not that unusual in our society. It doesn't, it's not unlike nightclubs, really. And when you think about it, you know, people get dressed up and for some that means wearing as little as possible and, and then they put on aftershave and nice smelling perfume. Then they go not to a threshing floor, they go to a dance floor Then they drink too much, then they find a person they hardly know and they jump into bed with them. And I'm not saying it's the right thing to do. I think it's kind of sad when people do it that way. But it seems, as we read this story, it's unusual advice, but it's not that different to what we experience every weekend in Melbourne. This has become a semi-normal part of our culture, but it certainly wasn't in theirs. And I think what makes it particularly unusual is that the mother-in-law is setting all of this up. And I think she does it for a couple of reasons. The first reason is that they lived in a culture of arranged marriages. Now, I've suggested to my daughters that that's still a good idea, that I will find you a suitable husband. Uh, I am yet to convince them. They're not convinced whatsoever. But this was a culture of arranged marriages. The second reason I think she did it is that they are destitute. They are literally scraping the bottom of the barrel, and they urgently needed to find someone to support them financially, or they would never break the cycle of poverty. And so women didn't have the same opportunities as men in those days to work. And in their culture, the man was the one who provided. And so Naomi is feeling the weight of responsibility. She feels the pressure that the husband's gone. And so she feels like it's all on her. And she needs to find a husband for Ruth. And Boaz is the perfect fit. Because verse 20 of the last chapter, chapter 2, told us he's a close relative. And he is what is known as a guardian redeemer. Now, a guardian redeemer is a legal term for somebody who has an obligation to redeem a relative in serious difficulty. Now, Ruth fits into that category. She's a foreigner. She's in a strange land. She has left her family and friends. She's lost her husband and her support, and she has no means of providing for herself. And so through marriage, she also qualifies as Boaz's relative, making him one of the only people who can possibly redeem her. And so being a kingsman redeemer has many more applications than simply helping someone in strife. If you look at the new Bible commentary, it explains it this way. It says, strong family ties in Israel meant that the verb redeem was in common use. It belonged to the realm of family law. Each member of a family or clan had an obligation to defend and provide for any other who was destitute or a victim of injustice. The redeemer of property was to buy back land a relative had sold in time of need, thus keeping it within the family. If someone sold themselves into slavery, the nearest relative had to buy their freedom. And the book of Ruth extends the duties of the redeemer 
to providing an heir for a male relative who has died childless, like um, Ruth's husband. Usually this duty fell to a brother, but in the case of Ruth, who had no brother-in-laws, a more distant relative was expected to marry her, as Naomi now revealed. And so what we're reading about this in this story is not some sort of strange hookup situation. This is not an ancient version of Tinder. This is actually a marriage proposal. Naomi knows what's going on. She sees an opportunity, perhaps the only hope, not only for Ruth, but also for her. And so she goes into full-on matchmaker mode. But there's still, I think, a massive step of faith required by Ruth. We need to understand how countercultural a proposal such as this would have been. This is a woman proposing to a man. This is a foreigner proposing to an Israelite. This is a young woman proposing to an old man. This is a poor widow proposing to a wealthy business owner. This is an outsider proposing to an insider. And really what we're reading today is unheard of in ancient times. And I can only imagine that Ruth in this situation would have been feeling incredibly nervous. I wonder this morning if you can remember your first ever date. You can, that's great. A bit young, but that's okay. I, don't know, I wonder if you can remember your first ever date. I remember my first date, my first official date. The year was 1991. And I was nervous. It was in year seven, and I was going to the movies with a group of friends at Southland Shopping Centre with a, 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 my first official girlfriend called Natasha. And it was a serious relationship. It was about a week old now. And we went to the movies to see potentially the worst movie ever made, but the title was appropriate for a first date. It was a movie called Flirting. Can anyone remember that movie? I'm not surprised. It's a very, 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 very forgettable movie, and I'm kind of embarrassed that I ever saw it. I can't tell you a single thing about the movie, but what I can remember is the nerves of that first date, and I remember it so clearly it was like yesterday. And I had one aim for that day, and the aim for that day was to get to the end of the day, and I wanted to be holding Tasha's hand. As I was writing this, I thought it would be an awkward story. I was picturing my wife in the second row, and her name's not Tash, but by the grace of God, she's in kids' ministry today. (laughs) And we've been through these rules before. What happens in the service stays in the service, right? So she'll never hear about any of this, although somehow she seems to always hear about stuff. And so let me remind you of the rules. What happens in the service stays in the service. And I remember sitting in this movie sharing a popcorn and Coke with Tash, and we both had our arms on the middle arm rest. And bit by bit, I edged my hand closer. Have you ever done this before? And, and I was getting my little finger closer and closer until eventually I just brushed by her little finger. And I think my heart stopped as I awaited for the response. What would Tash do? Would she pull away or would she be wise and pull her hand a bit closer? To my delight, she pulled her hand a little bit closer and her little finger brushed by my little finger. And I think my heart no longer stopped, but it was beating so loudly that she could probably hear it. And by the time the end of the movie came along, as the movie continued, the flirting increased. Do you see what I did there? The movie was called Flirting. Flirting increased and my hand moved closer. And by the end of the movie, guess what? We were holding hands. It's getting hot in here. We were holding hands and I thought, this is going to last forever. We broke up two weeks later. I now have a wife called Kim, which is, by the way, a big upgrade. And so if you're going to report back to my wife, I once had a girlfriend, but I've got a big upgrade. My wife, Kim, and I love her with all my heart and that's what she needs to hear this morning. 
I'm digging my way out of trouble. But Naomi's plan is an ancient plan, a little bit like mine, except she didn't want them to end up holding hands. She wanted them to end up engaged. She wanted these two to get engaged. Now, despite her nerves, we read in the passage that Ruth is completely obedient. In verse 5, she says, I will do whatever you say. So she went down to the threshing floor and she did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. This was to guard his prophets. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. And in the middle of the night, something startled the man, probably the strange woman lying at his feet. He said, who are you? She said, I am your servant Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Now, here's a fascinating little insight. The word corner, the corner of the garment, is the same word that is used in the previous chapter for the word wing. You might remember in the last chapter, Boaz had prayed a a pretty eloquent prayer over Ruth's life, a prayer of blessing. And he said these words. He said, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings, same word as the word corner, you have come to take refuge. And so now Ruth, in the middle of the night, startled, Uh, Boaz is startled, and she says to Boaz, I think she's deliberately using the same word, and I think the message is clear. Boaz, remember that beautiful prayer you prayed over my life just a little while ago? Well, guess what, Boaz? You can be the answer to your own prayer. Today you have the opportunity to be the one that God uses to reward me, to bless me, and to provide refuge in my life. And it's a good thing for us to consider this morning as well, isn't it? That who is it in our life that God has placed there that he wants us to be a blessing in their lives? This is what Ruth is saying to Boaz. I think the book of Ruth is a story of love, and it's particularly a story of redeeming love. This morning it's taken me a lot of time to build up to this part of the story and to arrive at this moment. And the reason I've done that is because of how significant this moment is in the book of Ruth and in Ruth's life. Boaz is a man who has the ability to completely change her life. In the darkness of that threshing floor, in the darkness of her heart where she's lost her husband, where she's left her country, where she's in a destitute circumstance, Boaz has the ability to provide a way out. He has the ability to provide financially for Ruth and Naomi to set them free from their poverty and struggles. And he also has the ability to provide a family and to continue Ruth's family name. Boaz has been provided by God and has the opportunity to redeem Ruth in the most wonderful way. And so this is the pinnacle tension point in the story. The scene is set. It's all been working up to this moment. Ruth has made her move. Like that day in the movie cinema, she has edged closer to Boaz. She's found out now where he's sleeping. She's uncovered Boaz's feet. In other words, she's put herself in a place of submission. She is throwing herself on his mercy and she has in the most audacious way asked Boaz to be her guardian redeemer. She has proposed that Boaz take her as his wife. And so we get to this moment and her entire future is hanging on his response. I want you to try and imagine her emotions in this moment. I think Ruth's heart would be beating. I think she's completely vulnerable. She has opened herself up to the possibility to, the re- to rejection. Boaz had the right to redeem Ruth, but he was under no obligation to. In fact, it would cost him a lot to be her redeemer. What would he say? 
How would he respond to this proposal? Would he reject this proposal or would he embrace Ruth? Would she leave that threshing floor hopeless or hopeful? Can you feel the tension? Your entire future hangs in the moment. Maybe if you've done BCE, you can imagine this tension as you await your results. Maybe if you've been for a job interview and you're waiting for the phone call. Maybe if you've proposed to your life partner and there was a pause. I remember on our wedding day in our vows, Kim wept through our vows and there was a long pause. And I remember thinking, is she crying tears of joy or is she regretting this decision already? And it seemed like forever as I waited to see what would happen. The text doesn't tell us how quickly Boaz responded. Did he pause? Did he consider the proposal for a minute or two minutes or five minutes? Or did he respond immediately? I get the impression from the text, from his keenness on Ruth, she was young and probably pretty cute, and his admiration of her character, I think his response is fairly swift. But either way, the the response is life-changing news for Ruth. In verse 10, Boaz says, The Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether they're rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Boaz shows that he is willing to redeem Ruth. And I can only imagine the joy that must have flooded her heart, the relief that would have accompanied his willingness. In the midst of the darkness and tragedy, God has been working all things together for Ruth in a miraculous way. She has found refuge under the wings of the God of Israel who hasn't forsaken her but has remembered her kindness and has responded with even greater kindness himself. Church, this is the God that we know. This is the God that works in our circumstances. This is the God that we serve. A God who does not forsake us but a God that never leaves us. A God is faithful. A God who is able to redeem even the worst circumstances. And as we said last week, no matter what you're going through, no matter how hopeless your circumstance feel right now, you can find refuge in a God who says, I can, I am, and I will redeem my people. For Ruth, this is a game changer. But there's a small obstacle. Boaz is willing, but there's another man who's a closer relative, and he has the first option to redeem Ruth. Boaz promises to sort it out the very next day, either way. And I believe that he's really hoping that the other guy isn't willing to pay the price. But you'll have to wait until next week to find that out. This morning, I want to finish by asking the question, what is the application of this story for us? Well, I think the application is an overarching one. And it's simply that God can redeem our lives. But more importantly, God has already provided the way for us to find redemption. I said at the start of this message that we are suckers for a good love story. And I wonder if that is because deep down we know intrinsically that God has created a way for us to be part of the greatest ever love story. You see, the Bible is God's great love story of redemption. The very beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, tells us about how God created the heavens and the earth and us and everything in it. The very end of the book, uh, Revelation, tells us about the future and what it will be like when Christ returns. And so if the Bible was a timeline, Ruth's story would be back here near the start, just after Genesis. But our lives will be up here, closer to the end of the story. We find ourselves immersed in the greatest love story ever told. 
The Bible is God's great story of redemption. I want you to see today that this little story with a lot of love, this nitty-gritty love story that's a bit of a mess, is a little story within a much bigger story. This little story with a lot of love points us to a bigger story of even greater love. It's a love story that you and I can be part of. You see, so many stories in the Old Testament point to a greater story that's to come in the New Testament through the person of Jesus Christ. So we read these stories and there's a whole lot of types and shadows that point to the ultimate fulfillment in Christ. The Old Testament never uses the word Jesus, but he radiates from every page. And we might not be in this story about Ruth, but we are in this great big story, this great big story that this little story points to. And in the great big story, we're the character like Ruth. So we read about Ruth. She was lost in the darkness. She had little to no hope for the future. She couldn't save herself from her own story. You and I are like Ruth in this big story. We find ourselves hopelessly lost because we were created for a relationship with a God who loves us. But each and every one of us, from Adam and Eve right through to us, have turned our back on God and we've rebelled against him and we've said, no, thank you, God, we'll do things our own way. And so we find ourselves lost. The Bible says that we are dead in our sin and we have all contributed to this big obstacle that separates us from a holy God. We've all lied, we've all cheated, we've all hurt one another, we've all gossiped at different times and this sin obstacle between us and God is a big problem because God is holy and he can't tolerate sin. And so it keeps us separated from the very relationship that we were created to enjoy. We're hopelessly lost. We are the problem. Like Ruth, we are in a dark and desperate circumstance with no hope for an eternal future apart from a redeemer. In this story, Ruth finds a redeemer in the person of Boaz. Boaz is the Christ-like character in this story who points us to who Jesus is and what he does in our lives. Boaz is the only person who could save Ruth. Jesus is the only person who can save you and me. Jesus was God in human form the sinless Son of God, perfect in every way. And so when he died on the cross, he didn't die for his sin, he died for yours and mine. And he was the only person that qualified to pay the punishment because he was without sin. If he was a sinner, he'd have to die for his own sin. But he wasn't, so he died for ours. Jesus is our Redeemer, and he becomes a Redeemer for every single person who would accept him. But like Ruth, we have a choice on how we're going to respond. Ruth could have stayed in the field, And said, yeah, there's a redeemer, but I'm too proud to go to him. I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to stay in my own brokenness and poverty. I'm going to do my own thing. And we too can do the same. We can look at Jesus and we can say, no, no, thank you. We can reject him and say, I'll do things my own way. I'll pay the penalty for my own sin. Thank you very much. And we can respond that way or we can respond like Ruth did. Because Ruth went to her redeemer, Boaz, and she threw herself at his feet with humility And she asked him to come into her life as her redeemer. We too this morning can come to the feet of the cross and we can lay down our sin. And we can say, Jesus, I need you to take the punishment for me. I need you to be my saviour. I need you to be my redeemer. And like Boaz, Jesus is willing. When Jesus becomes our redeemer, we are guaranteed that we are forgiven. We go from being outsiders to insiders. We go from being outsiders to becoming the children of the Most High God. No greater love has the world ever seen than what Jesus demonstrated 
for us at the cross. This story of Ruth is a great love story, but it points to the ultimate love story. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. This morning we came to the moment of tension in the story of Boaz and Ruth. But this morning we come to our own moment of tension. And the moment of tension is this, what will we do with our Redeemer? How will we respond to his sacrifice? It cost Boaz a lot to redeem Ruth. It cost Jesus even more to redeem us. And so how do we respond this morning to our Redeemer? I want to encourage you this morning to consider what Jesus did and to accept him into your life, knowing that you will leave this place forgiven and in relationship with God. And you don't have to get everything perfect before you do that. Jesus does his best work in our mess. As we bring our mess to the cross, we leave it there and we exchange it for the righteousness of Jesus. And so this morning, what will you do with this ultimate redeemer in the greatest love story ever told? My prayer is that you'll become part of it through accepting him. Let's bow our heads. We're going to close in prayer. Just as we bow our heads this morning, I don't know everybody here. Well, every head is bowed and every eye is closed. I want to give an opportunity to anybody here who has never accepted Jesus as their Lord. This morning I've mentioned how God works in the mess of our lives and today you may feel lost or broken. Maybe you don't know whether you're in relationship with God. Perhaps you have no hope for an eternal future after you die. But this morning I want to give you an opportunity to accept Jesus, to lay your sin at the feet of the cross and invite him into your life as your Redeemer. And if you were to do that today, it would be the greatest moment of your life. And it is for so many people in this room who've done this before, that they've exchanged their sin for the righteousness of Christ. They've exchanged their hopelessness for a hope that no one can take away. And so this morning, while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, I just want to give an opportunity to anyone who says, Luke, I want to know Jesus. Even in the mess of my life, I want to know him as my saviour and redeemer. So if you're here this morning... And that's you, or no one's looking around. I want to encourage you to lift your hand and say, Luke, that's me. I'm not going to embarrass you, but I'd certainly love to pray for you at the end of the service. Is there anybody here this morning? There's one person down the back there. That's awesome to see that hand. Is there anyone else who wants to join this brave young guy and say, Luke, that's me. I need Jesus in my life. I'm lost. I can't save myself from my own story. I need a redeemer. Is there anyone else here in this room? Luke wants to say, Luke, that's me this morning. Okay, let's stand to our feet this morning. We're going to finish and praying. We're going to pray together this prayer. If you've prayed it before, I want you to pray it again with all of your heart. Let's do it with a bit of excitement and enthusiasm this morning. Someone's just given their life to the Lord, and that's the greatest thing that can ever happen, right? It's awesome. Uh, That's incredible, isn't it? What's for lunch? Someone just gave their life to Jesus. That's the greatest thing that can ever happen, and we should never take that for granted. So let's bow our heads, and we're going to pray together with this guy. If you've prayed it before, pray it again. If you haven't, then you can pray it again with me this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you that you've rescued us from our mess. We thank you that you gave your son, Jesus. Jesus, thank you that you died on the cross to take our sin. Lord, we thank you that you're our redeemer, that we have hope for the future, that we have forgiveness of sin, and that we have eternal life. Lord, come into my life this morning. 
be my saviour. In Jesus' name, amen.